Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I appreciate that testimony. I've, I've often spoken from this pulpit about things that we embrace that maybe make people a little uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, Jesus embraced some truths that made people uncomfortable. That's similar in some respects to what I would call the Good Samaritan testimony, right? Here's a man who is not in the eyes of conventional wisdom or conventional religion involved or enfranchised in some church body, right? He's not. His life, I believe, will be greatly improved by joining the Lord's New Testament church. But you can look at him and say, he's not a church member. He is, uh, he's outside the church in that respect. And so it has kind of an unconventional testimony, right? And that's the same thing with the Good Samaritan. And that day they're saying, well, not only is this person not part of the proper Orthodox religion, he's actually part of a religion that embraces a lot of things that are wrong. And Jesus takes that man and says, here's an example of someone who has the love of God in his heart such that he's loving his fellow brethren in the way that I'm teaching that men ought to. Now, I submit to you it's impossible for that man to be an example of the love for one's neighbor that Jesus Christ was preaching unless he is a born-again child of God. Amen. That underscores the fact that God is doing a work in this world in the hearts of people that never darken the door of a church and they never become primitive Baptists. We get accused a lot of times of, well, you primitive Baptists, you're so particular about what you believe that you think it's just us four and no more is your doctrine. And if anyone's really sat and listened to our preaching, they're going to realize that is a complete fabrication. We don't believe that at all. We believe God is God and He can do a work in the hearts of people, put His love in them, put His Spirit in them without the aid of conventional religion. Right. That said, it is people like that that could benefit greatly from being a part of the Lord's New Testament church. And that's the hope of evangelism, by the way, that there are people out there who God has done a work in their hearts. They have the ears to hear. They could profit from understanding things and joining the Lord's New Testament church. So that's an important thing to recognize. Paul says something about it in uh, Romans 11. Or Romans 10, there's a big discussion about people who've heard the gospel and they hadn't responded to it at all in the latter part of that. And you get over in Romans 11, and um, you've got kind of uh, Elijah's pity party here where he's saying, well, you know, look, they killed all the prophets, and I'm the only one that's left. You know, if they kill me, the cause is going to be, it's going to be a lost cause, Right. In other words, if all these preachers and religious officiators aren't around to do some work for God, then God's going to have His hands tied behind His back. It's kind of the mindset that Elijah's presenting here. It's a mindset that exalts the role of man beyond what it is and ignores the reality that God is God and He can do with His creation as He wishes. And um, God answers this pity party of Elijah who says, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. You see, he's saying, I'm the last one left. If they get me, what's, what are we going to do? It's going to be a lost cause if they get me. But what saith the answer of God unto him? What is God's response to that? 
I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. I've done a work in this world you don't know anything about. And I don't need your help in it. And though you are a great prophet of God, who's going to deny that Elijah was a great prophet of God? Yet even Elijah can kind of have a wrong attitude about the importance of his own ministry. God's doing a work. If we're doing what's right here, professing what is right in gospel ministry, we're coming alongside those who have the ears to hear and hopefully giving them something to hear. Helping explain their experience and understand that the God that changed their heart is not a God that does that because He sent some preacher to you. He changes men's hearts directly. And that's why you can have that sort of testimony. Invite that brother to church. I'd love to have him here. And uh, I'm not, I know you will. I know you will. Uh, maybe that plays into my topic a little bit today. I'm back over in Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And this is in the, uh, the realm of trying to pick up the narrative after the first three verses of that chapter, which is warning us about the fact that there's going to be false teachers in the Lord's church. And it's something we should be aware of. And starting in verse 4, Peter begins to make some points about this that I think are needful for us as we observe the world around us. He kind of goes into this. He affirms some points here that I want to try to hit this morning. He first off affirms that God is the sovereign judge. He is the judge of this world, and it is his prerogative to judge the world as he sees fit. This, by the way, is one of the most disturbing aspects of the Christian faith to the carnal heart of man. Man has got a Burger King mindset. If you're old enough to remember, uh, the Burger King commercials have it your way. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us have it your way. All right? You remember that commercial? That is, I mean, it's a great thing to keep in mind because you've probably watched more advertising than you've watched church services. Now, what you spend time on has a radical ability to reshape the way you think about things. And even if it's something as mundane as commercials, you might say, well, it's just a commercial, it's a burger commercial. It's not shaping the way I think. It's shaping the way you think. In fact, advertising understands the psychology of the carnal man and places ideas regularly in front of him that the carnal mind is apt to accept. Have it your way. I mean, at the core of the Christian faith, you could break down the Christian faith very simply in this way. You could say, there is my will be done, and there is thy will be done. Now, have it your way. Which side of the equation does that fall on? Have it your way is on the my will be done side of things. And it appeals to the carnal minds of man. It appeals to every man on some level. Even those who have a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they realize it's thy will be done, and they, they're living and trying to affirm that, they're still maintaining an old man in their total composition that somehow wants to embrace their own preferences in things. And this idea that God is the sovereign judge of the universe is one of those ideas that on some level I think every man has a little bit of opposition to, and a lot of them have tremendous opposition to. 
You say, well, brother, I'm a Christian and I affirm that God is the sovereign judge and the sovereign ruler of this. You know, I affirm it. Well, have you ever been a little bit disappointed or upset over the fact that one of your prayers has not yet been answered? We all have. If you've ever prayed for anything, you've recognized that prayer is not a get out of jail free card that immediately is answered and everything gets fixed the moment you pray about something. It just does not happen that way. And I submit to you as exhibit A in your own sense of disagreeing with God's sovereign rulership, that when you're kind of upset about these things, there's a part of you that's saying, I don't like how God has chosen to exercise His sovereign rule in this situation. I would much prefer that my will be done then thy will be done. I want to have it my way. These ideas get stuck in our head, and part of the reason they resonate with us to some degree is because of the carnal man, the old man, the carnal nature that we all continue to maintain to some level. That's why advertising takes such advantage of those types of things. These ideas get preached, and there's doctrines that exist in the world that get preached to you And it's rarely done in a setting where they say, now come into this and we're going to teach you the doctrine of the world. We're going to teach you all the methods we use to deceive you. And we're going to break it down for you. And we have a scripture that we're going to use. It's going to explain it in very clear detail so that you can understand it. It doesn't work that way. It's all given to you in very subtle, repetitive forms throughout the course of your life, whether it's in movies or media or social media or advertising or whatever, and you're just kind of pickled in it. (laughs) And it soaks in whether you realize it or not. So it's good to recognize this. I'm trying to emphasize this role of God as the sovereign judge, because maybe in the Lord's New Testament church, it's easy to say, well, absolutely. We believe God is sovereign. We say that a lot. He's the sovereign ruler. He's in charge. He's the sovereign judge. I don't want to trivialize that affirmation because it has a lot of ramifications in our lives. I kind of want to kind of draw those out to you. He also talks about God as the all-knowing deliverer. And then he talks about the fact that God is a faithful punisher. Now, we have an issue with that sometimes. And maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. It also has to do with how God chooses to exercise His prerogative as the sovereign judge of this world. We, at times, do not approve, at a minimum, of God's timing in the matter. And he talks a little bit about that. So we'll see how far we get with this today. I'm picking up in verse 4, starting with the idea that God is the sovereign judge. Now this is, again, in the context of talking about false prophets. He's talking about false prophets who are going to be in the Lord's church. They're going to be out there. You need to be watching for them. You need to be measuring what is being taught alongside the Word of God. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. That's the principle that we are to assess our ministers by. So he's talking about there's going to be these false prophets in here. And then he picks up with this idea. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now he's giving two examples there. He starts with angels. 
And again, he's affirming the idea that God is the sovereign judge. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he starts with angels. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? I mean, usually when we talk about God's judgment in the context of church and just regularly in Christian ministry, it's almost always in the domain of human salvation. You know, how is God going to be in showing mercy to people? And what are the requirements of God showing mercy on people? Does He require anything of you? Does He do it all Himself? These are the kind of questions that exist in the broader world of Christianity. It's pretty rare that you hear people talking about God having mercy on angels or punishing angels, but that's where Peter starts with the matter. He says, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, so there are angels that sinned, they fell, Bible speaks of elect angels, and, it, and so by implication there's non-elect angels. Those that sinned, just like man sinned, they fell into sin, they disobeyed God. And God spared them not. You follow that? So let me try to drill into what I'm trying to get you to think about here. Many in the Christian faith will say, well, if man fell... And God doesn't give every man a chance to be eternally saved. Then God is not good. Therefore, our doctrine teaches that God gives every man a chance, right? That's a very prevalent, I would say the dominant teaching in Christianity. It has a lot of different forms, but there's a lot of teaching that God's got to give everyone a chance, else God is not fair. Now, we've dealt with that issue many times before. But today I want to look at it in light of the angels, You follow me? Angels fell, and God spared them not. There is no salvific provision for the fallen angels. You follow me? There's none. That is very plainly stated here. And so if you take this premise that, well, if God doesn't give all men a chance to be saved because they fell, He's got to give them a chance to get back in God's graces, so to speak, if they do some things. Otherwise, God is not good. Okay, well, let's accept that that's the truth for a minute. Let's just play with that idea. Okay, what about angels? The angels fell, and God didn't spare them, and He didn't send them a Savior. There's no gospel for angels. There's no story of God becoming an angel so that he could die for their sins or whatever would have to transpire if such a thing were to come to pass. There's nothing. I think Peter starts here because this idea affirms in no uncertain terms that God is the sovereign judge of this world and he can do with this world as he saw fit such that if angels fell, God can say, I'm not providing them a savior. Well, why is that, brother? It seems unfair. That's God's plan. That's what He wanted to do. It's His sovereign prerogative to do that. And I submit that if God could do that with angels, there's no reason why you can insist then that God would be bad if He didn't give every man a chance to be eternally saved. This gets right into the heart of the matter. It points out God is the sovereign judge and He can do with this world as He wants to. He's also a righteous and holy judge, by the way. 
And that means not only is he at liberty to handle this in the way he sees fit, the way he sees fit to do it is in accordance with righteousness and justice. And we'll talk about that some more in a minute. Let me just briefly say this. Sometimes I've heard preaching done in such a way that it starts to imply that God was unjust in how He saved His people. Hopefully this rabbit trail is profitable. I've heard people say things like, you don't want justice. Have you heard this now? You don't want justice, you want mercy from God. You see what happened there? I think I understand the intent of when that said. I've heard many preachers say, Brothers and sisters, you don't want justice, you want mercy. I'm telling you the mercy of God is in accordance with justice. You can't set justice at odds with mercy. The mercy shown to you by God is mercy that is just. And the reason it's just is because your sins were punished in Christ. Amen. You follow me? Justice and mercy are in accordance with one another in the work of Christ. Now what people mean when they preach that is not, brother, you don't want justice, you want mercy. What they mean is, you don't want God's judgment on the basis of what you did. If you just took Christ off the table and said, okay, you're judged on your own merits, it is just for God to take your record and say, you fail, you're going to hell, He's just to do that. Okay? That's what they mean by that. They mean you don't want to be judged on the merits of your own personal performance. That's what they mean by it. But to use this salvation thing and try to say, okay, somehow being saved and the mercy of God is not in accordance with justice is wrong. It is in accordance with justice. By the way, if your salvation, if Christ bearing your sins and putting away your sins and being your intercessor and all those things was not just then God is unjust to declare you righteous on that basis. Christ's work was just, okay? And mercy was just on that basis. It's an important distinction to make. I see some furrowed brows. Some of you seem a little disturbed by it. And we'll try to summarize it one more time here. We'll talk about it over lunch. The mercy you received is in accordance with God's justice. He couldn't just look at you and say, I'm just going to forget about your sin. I'm going to ignore. It doesn't need any payment. I'm just going to overlook it without any intercession on the part of Christ or whatever. That would be unjust. But God is holy. He can't do that. So Christ had to die. And in so doing, He made it just that He could forgive you on the merits of Christ. Your forgiveness is in accordance with God's justice. See that? Had Christ not died on your behalf, if you're someone outside the domain of Christ's intercession, God is just to punish you on the merits of your own personal performance. That's the point I'm trying to make. Maybe that was too down in the weeds, but it it seemed needful. God is the sovereign judge. And He judged the angels, and they don't have a gospel or a salvation at all. And He's just to do that. If you can lay hold of that truth, probably why Peter started with it, if you can lay hold of that truth, some of these other things about humanity are easier to understand. Because it puts you in the realm of saying, oh, He is the sovereign judge. He can do with this world as He wants. 
He takes many of the oppositions off the table. But I'm getting buried in that. For just a quick proof of this idea, turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Just so you can put your eyes on this, because I kind of ran that rabbit trail, but I want, to, I want you to see the Scripture that I'm referring to, which makes it a little more clear. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. He's talking about Christ, and he says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. You see that? But he took on him the seed of Abraham. That is the same point being made again. Jesus Christ didn't come and become an angel so that he could be a substitute for angels and become their savior. He came to save men, and he did not take on the form of angels. You see that? It's another important distinction in underscoring the magnitude of God's sovereign rule and the application of it as it relates to the fallen world. So Christ didn't die for angels. There's no salvation for angels. And there's no apology made in the Scriptures for that notion. It's just that's what God decided to do. And there it is. He then goes on to Noah. Starts talking about Noah, "...and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly." Well, I won't belabor that point too terribly much, but now he's getting into the realm of saying, look, there was a horribly wicked world at one point to such a degree that God said, I'm going to wipe it all out except for eight people. If you really think about the ramifications of that, a world and eight people are saved and God just wipes it off the face of the earth, that's His sovereign prerogative to do that. Many people would just, on its face, would say, well, that's just not, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like that's right for God to do something like that. But Peter is trying to make the point that God is the sovereign judge of this world, and He can do these things if He so chose. Verse 6 he picks up, and he's going to give the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Now what is that ensample? I've heard a preacher stand from the pulpit and make this statement. If God does not destroy San Francisco, California, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. No? This statement where it says, it's an ensample unto those that after should live godly, does not mean, therefore, any city that goes after the rampant ungodliness that was evident in Sodom and Gomorrah will be likewise destroyed in the same fashion. That is false. And you know why it's false? Because God is the sovereign judge and ruler of the world, and He can judge them as He sees fit. It's an ensample to them in the respect that it shows them God's disposition towards this type of sin. That's the ensample. That minister who said God's going to have to apologize, he's making an error on the other side. As if God is hedged in upon providing the exact same temporal judgment for sin to every single person in the temporal world. We know that's not true. It's evidently not true. You know somebody who's ever driven drunk? Did they get a DWI for it? You say, well, some of them did, but some of them didn't. Hmm. 
You know, people who have engaged in fornication, some of them got pregnant, some of them didn't. Some people who use drugs, well, that guy got arrested because he had a bag of weed in his car. This other guy used it for 10 years, never got caught. There's all sorts of ways that temporal punishments are meted out differently to people. There's people who do one thing wrong on one occasion and they reap lots and lots of temporal consequences for it. And then other people who seem to get away with things over and over again don't seem to really ever get caught. It's evidently clear to anyone that in temporal matters, there's different levels of judgment that come into people's lives. And God is the sovereign over any of that stuff. He can control those circumstances and He can choose to bring down condemnation temporally on somebody very strongly. And in other instances, not so much. Now ultimately, God's punishment for sin is in eternity. It's a matter of eternity. And so there's a distinction between how God deals with matters temporally and how ultimately, when the final tally is rounded up, everyone's going to be judged either on their own merits or on the merits of Christ. And so it's not as though God is overlooking those sins from an eternal sense. He's just controlling different aspects of how they get addressed in the here and now. And it's very evident to any of us that they're not always, you don't spread God's mercy, so to speak, or His uh, dealing with temporal matters. It doesn't spread evenly across the bread like peanut butter. There's clumps and lumps and dry spots elsewhere. So that all has to do with God's sovereign judgment in the matter. And he's at liberty to do that. Keep going here. Verse 7, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. You might look at Lot's life and say, well, I don't even know why God would deliver him. He just seems like he's doing everything wrong. Then this verse comes along and it calls him just Lot. And I want to draw out what that means for you. It doesn't mean only Lot. Well, just Lot. It's not that kind of just. The word that is translated just there means righteous. It means just in the sense that he is a just man, not just a man. See what I'm saying? And it emphasizes that, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Lot is an enigmatic character, but he's given here as an example of one of God's children who was delivered in temporal circumstances, though I can say from the evidence of his life we see, we don't see much cause there for God to say, well, he was very faithful all these years, so I'm going to deliver him out of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't see much of a cause for that. But what evidence do you see of Lot? And I think this is a cautionary tale about us stepping into the role of acting as if we're the judge of others in eternal matters. It says that he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now, he was there brokering in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a rampantly wicked place. Wickedness for sale on the streets in kind of every form, okay? Open sexual immorality everywhere 
for sale and being practiced by everyone. This is the environment he's in. But it says he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. So he's in this situation and it's troubling to him. Now look, any of us can find ourselves in situations where we're surrounded and we think, this is troubling to me. But the other perspective on that was like, well, you're right there in the middle of it. Everybody's in the middle of such things is not necessarily someone who is of that group of people, though they may be acting in a way that seems that way. This is just Lot. He's vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. That means in his mind, he's seeing things in this horribly wicked city. And he's thinking, this is not right. This is not how it should be. Now, if you're pitching your tent toward Sodom, the implication there being, you're doing business in Sodom. Got to maintain good business relationships. We're doing business in Sodom. Probably best if you're Lot, and probably in service to your business, to say, better keep that thought on the down low. Right? If you're running a hot dog stand in Sodom, and your people are coming up to you trying to order food, and you, everyone that came up to order something, you're like going... Hey, you know, you're really uh, living a horrible life that's very sinful, and I, I think you need to turn it around. Do you want some uh, relish on that or mustard? Do you want some fries to go along with it? It's not going to do much for your business. These things can be possessed by God's people, and they can think in terms of, I need to keep that on the down low, because if I'm doing business in a rampantly wicked world, it's probably best to not bring that to light. This righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, he was troubled every day when he went to work in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it bothered him. But I suspect that from his outward countenance, if you're just watching him on his daily commute back and forth to Sodom and Gomorrah and how he's interacting with people, you probably weren't likely to actually see that in him. And that to me is a cautionary word that further emphasizes this notion of God as the righteous judge. God is the sovereign judge. We may find people, we may find ourselves at times, we may have been in situations where we appear to be one way and we're we're not. We appear to be doing one thing and we're actually thinking about things very differently. And, you know, Jesus talked about if someone has so much as given you a cup of water with the proper motive, in His name, that person is not going to lose their reward. Now, unless you have an aperture on someone else's life that is sufficient to not only see every mundane act they've ever done in kindness to someone else. First of all, none of us know that. That's the obvious thing I'm saying. But let's assume that you did have that. You knew every mundane little simple kindness thing they ever did to somebody that nobody would really think much about, like giving somebody a cup of water. Somebody gave me a cup of water. It's a minor act. One brother or sister in Christ thinks about it on a Sunday morning and they put it up here. It's a simple thing. You all probably don't ever think about it. I don't put this here. I don't even always know who puts it here. 
But Jesus said, if you've given someone a cup of water in His name, in other words, you're thinking, I'm going to do this kindness to somebody. The Lord's been kind to me. I'm going to do something kind to somebody else. Doing something in Christian love for someone else, even something as simple as giving them a cup of water, they're not going to lose their reward. Now, unless you can see and you know every little simple kindness that someone has ever done over the course of their life. And if you've seen all those things, you actually know what their heart was in the matter on every single one of those things, then you have absolutely no basis to judge someone and say things like, well, I just don't see any, any works in their life. I don't see any righteousness. I don't see any evidence that they're doing good works. That is a foolish notion. I think that's why the Lord gives the example of a cup of water, because it's such a simple thing. I mean, you have somebody show up at your house to deliver a package. You don't even know the person. They're sweating, and you know they're out there working all these. Can I get you a cup of water? You know, just a simple kindness like that. If it's done with the motive of, God's been good to me. I love the Lord. I want to be kind to this person. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I think this is a warning against stepping into the judgment seat on others with respect to their eternal disposition before God. Now, when you speak of judgment, it's always important to make the distinction that many people say, the Lord said, do not judge. And that gets in a twist. And what the world will promote under that, well, let's say, well, you're just supposed to not have any discretion or discernment about anything. It's just whatever goes and don't judge anything. Well, that is not what he's teaching. He's talking about stepping into this role of the sovereign judge where you can make proclamation. Say, well, what I've seen, this person is going straight to hell. Now, are you to have judgment with respect to what is sin and what is not? Of course you are. Absolutely you are. But that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about judgmentalism rather than judgment with respect to things that are clearly taught in the Bible that are good and bad. But in the case of Lot, we see this person and the testimony of their righteousness is all going on between their ears. It's thoughts they're having about the world. And they're saying, uh, he knows enough of God to know uh, the way these people are living is not right. It really bothers me. I wish it wasn't this way, but hey, I'm here. I'm making a living. I'm going to try to do the best I can with it. Lot was a righteous man. Moving on to verse 9, this is God as the all-knowing deliverer. And I'll speak briefly on this and maybe pick it up next Sunday. Verse 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The problem we have with God's sovereign judgment with respect to this world has to do with our sense of timing versus his sense of timing. We see horribly wicked things going on in the world, and we would like to see that brought to justice immediately. And we're very frustrated. You know, when I said earlier in the sermon, even God's people get frustrated. Even old Baptists who talk about God is sovereign. He's the sovereign judge. He's in control, and we, we, yay and amen. Hail sovereign love. Let's sing that. Right? I mean, we can affirm that, and yet think back over the last week, the last month, the last six months of your life, about all the things that are going on in our society that you are just very upset about and recognize, while you may find it upsetting, 
These things are being handled in accordance with God's timing on the matter. That is the evidence that we're not quite as ready to affirm God as the sovereign ruler as we might like to think we are. We can affirm it in an academic sense. That's what the old Baptist church does. We say God is sovereign. And then when we bellyache and complain about all the things that haven't gone just the way we think it should go, we're actually giving evidence of the fact that, well, I guess I'm not too happy about how God is choosing to dole out temporal judgment in this matter. Well, God is sovereign in that as well. And it oftentimes does not go in accordance with our preferences. It's not a hold the pickles and hold the lettuce matter. It's what God's going to do about it. And we are to be patient. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes in these matters, and there are going to be many of them, We're going to see lots of things that aren't going the way that we want them to. But we know ultimately this truth. We'll close here. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Know this. The trials that you're going through, the difficulties, that discomfort you have with God's timing with respect to your timing, God knows how to deliver you out of that circumstance. Maybe sometimes we need to just be praying to the Lord, you know what? I have to confess, I disagree with how you're handling this. Now, we're not right to disagree with God, but it's also not right to try to hide that fact if that's really what you're doing, and it's what we do a lot of times. Maybe the prayer we need to have a lot of times is, Lord, reconcile me to your will. It's not about, did they hold the lettuce on my burger? It's about, Your will and not my will. And I know ultimately you can deliver me out of this. You can deliver me out of this situation where I feel in this way about it. You can deliver me out of this temptation. He knows how to do it. If you've affirmed that he's a sovereign of this universe, he certainly knows how to do it. But he also knows how to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. All of the injustice that you see in this world where you say, temporally, here's people doing horrible things and they seem to get away with it. They did a bunch of horrible stuff and they got away with it. That has happened throughout the course of human history. There are saints of God that have been put to death for what they believe by wicked people that just did horrible things, tortured them, chopped them up, murdered them, killed their children, horrible, horrible things. And I get the idea that in our hearts we say, I want that to be punished right here and right now, and I'd like to see it. But God is the sovereign judge. And while not everything is properly judged to our measure in temporal matters in the here and now, by the way, those offenses are such that they can never be properly judged in the here and now. You see that? They can never be judged in such a way that it eliminates the offense. See what I'm saying? The law cannot eliminate your offense. Only the work of Christ can do that. All these things shall come to pass because He knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Whatever injustices that exist that you see in this world that have not been addressed, at least in your eyes, 
we can know this. God is going to bring the entire world into judgment. And no sin is going to go unpunished. It's either going to be punished in the form of the eternal damnation of the one who committed the sin, or it was punished in the form of Jesus Christ, the intercessor who bore the stripes for His people. Those people were by nature children of wrath just like everybody else. They did horrible sinful things too. And their salvation is just. And it's just because those sins were punished. They were punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.